an often used description of the practice that we do is or comparison is that it's as if there are two people having a struggle or a fight and one is the Dhamma or the the path Marga and the other is Kilesa and Dhanha the cause of suffering and these two people are having continuous battle in our minds as time passes sometimes Marga is on top when our effort becomes uh, strong and continuous other times Marga fades and the calaces and craving take over. And that's to be expected until one perhaps reaches the point where Marga becomes established in the mind. becomes established in the mind then gives rise to power and the end of doubts as to what is the right path and not what is the right way to practice or not and right view is established in the mind the way one views this body and mind. One sees it for what it is. So until Marga is established, then whatever experience we have, physical or mental, we take it as a self. So we believe our happiness is us, it's me, it's mine. We believe our suffering is me, it's mine. We take ownership of everything, body and mind, and the world around us as well, fed by delusion, and this is why we keep having problems in life and we keep finding the mind is not peaceful. So the practice of Marga is developing that all the qualities needed to be able to see the truth of things the way they are. That happiness is not us. Suffering is not us. These are just conditions 
states arising, passing away, but without any real owner. And developing that detached awareness where insight is clear and we know the way things are. we follow the way of Kilesa and Dunha, well there's no end to the suffering that they bring us. The mental disturbance, the wrong views, wrong ways of thinking, believing everything is me, is mine, misunderstanding truth. giving too much importance to things in the mind, in our experience. So our aim as uh, summoners, practitioners, monastics, we're aiming to <clears throat> keep bringing up Marga, bringing up the qualities, the factors of Marga. This is right effort, one of those factors, right effort, the effort to counter Kilesa and craving, prevent it arising, or if it has arisen, to abandon it and the effort to bring up the opposite and bring up the factors of the path sila samadhi panya the mindfulness, the wisdom and develop it and it's a matter of being patient and energetic enough and willing enough to keep returning to the task of developing the path bringing it up, establishing and abandoning the kilesas and the craving, craving that disturbs the mind and takes it away from the path. The Buddha's very last instructions to us as bhikkhus was to reflect on the impermanence of this world, this body, this mind and the world we live in and to take that as a starting point for developing heedfulness, to take care to see that to follow kilesa and craving only brings us to suffering and disappointment because the nature of the world is impermanent. And Kilesa just keeps feeding our attachment to that which is impermanent and this belief in a self that identifies with everything keeps bringing us suffering. So the Buddha said keep developing the path with heedfulness because that truth 
is always there, the impermanence of things. So as we practice the path in the reflection on death, Moranana Sati keeps bringing us back to reality. The real world is the fact that this world is impermanent. This body and mind is impermanent. What is impermanent is dukkha. What is dukkha is not self. So a very valuable reflection and also meditation object reflect on death constantly both as a theme and attitude just to bring the mind back to the present moment and undermine the power of kilesha to over to take over the mind because kilesha and craving are fed by delusion your wrong beliefs we look at things wrongly, misunderstand things. We often need quite strong reflections and techniques to help counter that. So the reflection on death, the very impermanence of this life, cuts right through to the truth of things. If we follow the kilesas, it's always in the way of either seeking to delight in things, attracted to things, or else averse to things. Attraction and aversion arising based on our senses, fed by delusion. When we contemplate impermanence and death, we realize that however attractive it is, it's impermanent and if we grasp and seek for that which is impermanent we're always going to be disappointed frustrated tired and so on if we keep grasping at aversion and dwelling on the things that bring us aversion well similarly we'll suffer when we reflect on death it brings us right back to the present moment and whatever's arising, we can know it, even if the mind is falling into attraction, falling into aversion, we can know it and abandon it, knowing that it's impermanent and the object of our attraction or our aversion is impermanent. You can follow your attractions and try and seek pleasure in the things of this world endlessly but that reflection just puts it in its place and we're all going to die other people are going to die life is impermanent we can't hold on to anything so there's no point being caught into aversion or attraction for this world This is the Pachubana Dhamma, just noting something that's arising into your awareness as you meditate or as you practice mindfulness in your daily life. Pachubana Dhamma, Adita Dhamma, Anagata Dhamma, Pachubana Dhamma. We might have many memories and then mental proliferation based on our memories. It's just Adita Dhamma. 
your visual images, sounds, thoughts and ideas based on memories, likes and dislikes, but they are just memories of the past, Adita Dhamma, or projections into the future, Anagata Dhamma, wishing for something we haven't got, planning, hoping for, seeking something we haven't got, thinking it will bring us pleasure or solve our problems. But when you bring it, bring up mindfulness, just Anagata Dhamma, Pachubana Dhamma, whatever's arising right before you in your practice. As we develop the path, we can put craving and kilesa into perspective like this. We can understand our own karma and our own past and habits, bringing things up into our mind. But they're just pachubana dhamma arising and passing away. And we can allow them to cease and end as we reflect on impermanence and on death, the impermanence of this life, this world. The opposite is to just let the kalesas take over so we can endlessly seek and want things and think that will bring us the end of suffering, the objects of our desires. But the more we contemplate, the more we can see desire, my desire can never be satisfied. It's not even in line with reality. You're trying to make the world fit your desire is impossible. The world doesn't match that, doesn't fit with one's individual desires. But delusion, misunderstanding makes us think it can and that's why we keep suffering. We keep thinking we can get things and that will solve our suffering, get what we want and get rid of what we don't like. The more we follow our desires in any aspect of life, the more confused we get and the more restless the mind becomes, the more dissatisfied it becomes. So we have this practice, the, the method, the path that the Buddha gave us, Sila Samadhi Panya on the Eightfold Path. When we come to apply it, we have to start using some wisdom in daily life to see what works to help support the arising of the path factors and right effort, right view, right effort, right mindfulness and so on. And this is what monastic training is for, the purpose of it is to give us a suitable environment, suitable companions, suitable teachings and then suitable practices that will help us to develop the path. We often call it in short the core what, the modes of practice and the training rules, training practices of a bhikkhu. It's beginning with the patimokkha and then extending out we have many duties to perform, the rules to keep, practices to do. All of these are helping provide a skillful means to 
develop the path and to abandon Kalisa. That's their purpose. But we have to put effort into developing the core and the practices of a bhikkhu. So we have to put effort into learning the patimokkha, the rules, and then applying them, training ourselves. We learn the basic practices of a bhikkhu. We learn how to look after our requisites, our bowl and our robes and our kuti, to reflect on the requisites that we use. We learn how to look after ourselves, to be self-sufficient. We learn how to sew robes, learn the sort of basic maintenance of our requisites and our kuti, how to clean things, maintain things. We learn the teachings, and we learn how to chant, put effort into learning chanting, morning, evening chanting, and parita chanting, and patimoka chanting. These are skillful ways both to bring the mind to the Dhamma, to drop kilesa, to give something wholesome to focus on and to develop mindfulness and their meditations in themselves. We learn chanting, we learn the Dhamma from listening to talks, reading, studying and so on to familiarize ourselves with the Dhamma, with the path and then we can use that knowledge actually reflect on our own inner practice to bring up the Dhamma and to counter Kilesa. We learn the Acharya Vata, how to relate to senior bhikkhus. We develop the Brahmaviharas, how to develop harmonious living with the community and the lay, wider lay community. And the Buddha said, it's a form of happiness that will support your meditation, developing the ability to be in harmony with your fellow monastics. Sukhasa Samaki. It's a cause for happiness when there's harmony in just learning to give up, say, to the monastic form, the routines, the practices, the, the schedule, joining in meetings and work projects, whatever the schedule brings us just learning to put effort into that. This is the path, this is bringing up the path to counter different kinds of kilesa that might, might arise. Developing the Brahmavihara so that we have a sense of patience, tolerance, kindness towards others even though we don't always agree with them or particularly like other members of the community, we can at least learn to be tolerant of them and accepting of the way others are just as we hope they would accept us. And this way there's a fruitful environment for one's inner practice to grow. Tolerance of the laity and kindness, compassion towards the lay community. These are all skills that we have to learn and apply ourselves to and there are ways that from you know, day one in the monastery, they're helping you to counter kilesa, uh, helping you to bring up right effort, 
to develop the path and counter kilesa. There's always more to do in learning some of these skills, using our time wisely because death is on our shoulder and we don't know how long we've got, how long our good health will last, how long our life will last. We never have to be at a loose end. We can always develop our time skillfully. All of this core what you might summarize as sila. The Buddha said sila, the benefit of developing good sila is samadhi. Samadhi arises out of good sila. You train your mindfulness first. You're mindful of your sila, mindful of your practices in the monastery and this trains your mind so it's easier to develop mindfulness of a meditation object and the meditation object you develop this allows you to become mindful of the objects of insight and each dukkha anatta this is how the path builds in our monastic training You have to develop the perception of being a bhikkhu, a samana. It doesn't necessarily come easily because we come out of the lay life having lived many, lay, many years as a lay person. So one has to work at it for, at first until one becomes more used to being a bhikkhu. It's more normal just to keep the rules and follow the ways of training of a bhikkhu and then it just becomes natural to think in that way but at first one has to work at developing the samana sanya sometimes the Buddha talked about the bhikkhu as a separate caste in India they had the caste system say the warrior caste the merchant caste the lower castes the untouchables and so on but the bhikkhu is a completely separate caste, completely separate from the normal class system and way lay people related to each other. The bhikkhu is outside of that, something very different. One who is an arms mendicant, the mind focused on the practice of developing the path for Nibbana. So the samana is a little bit different that requires some thought and consideration to bring up that perception I am a samana now and there's the samana on the outside learning the rules putting on the robe, shaving our head learning, following the rules and then there's the samana on the inside meaning the peaceful one established in the Brahma Viharas and the sense of renunciation of sensuality and sexuality Practicing Brahmaviharas, it's in bringing the mind to a point where you could say that it's neither male nor female. And Brahma is as if without sexuality at all. We practice celibacy and we completely renounce the way of the world. It follows sexuality, male, female, and the normal pulls and attractions and aversions of male, female a very refined perception to develop 
One has to work from the outside inwards. Just moving away from all forms of attraction to the opposite sex in, and in seeing them as an object of sexuality. Then moving, contemplating inwards, moving away from the desire for sexual pleasure and sensuality and that form of pleasure, seeing again the impermanence of it. just something that keeps going to cessation, cannot bring us any lasting happiness. The Samana Sanya, this is something one develops whether one's on one's own, with others, in the monastery, outside the monastery, one's bringing that up. And maybe at first it, it brings up a little bit of tension because everyone around us is maybe not supporting that perception. Lay people don't always relate to us as samanas. Or we ourselves forget we're a samana. So there's some tension as we're trying to establish that perception. But if we keep working at it, well, it will, our view will change. And just as our view of being a samana can change, that becomes established. Well, our view of Sakaya Ditti can change. We can start to relinquish our attachment to suffering and happiness, pleasure and pain, no longer grasping it or believing it as a self. But all of this takes time and effort, and so we have right effort to keep developing the path and the factors of the path. Often it begins before in the monastery. We have, as a lay person, we all had our inspiration to come into the robes from books, maybe meeting other bhikkhus, hearing talks, reading books, and then thinking about it. I remember when I first encountered the Buddhist teachings, reading about the life of the Buddha and the way he practiced, and just the thought that human beings can live like this, celibate, dependent on arms, living quietly in the forest, not harming anybody, not bothering anybody, just being developing peaceful states of mind, developing insight into the true nature of existence. Very, very inspiring because it's so different from everything else in the world. Everything else the world has to offer just seems to go towards confusion and suffering. Even pleasure tends to develop more, one, more confusion and more suffering for one, seeking pleasure and expecting the pleasures of the world to solve all our problems. The ideal of a samana, of the Buddha or a sawaka, very inspiring because it's so different and Learning to live in the world as a samana, you could see it's a way of living in a totally uncompromising way where one doesn't have to set aside one's principles or ideals. One can actually live them by keeping sila and developing the path more than any other walk of life. But one has to really bring up that perception and 
you know, learn to really appreciate it more so that it helps having established that perception it helps draw out the right effort to, to follow the training of a bhikkhu and it becomes more natural to want to do that more easy to do that because one is content with the ideal and the form of a bhikkhu one is content to be practicing for peace as lay people often it's just an ideal for at first maybe not quite sure what it involves I remember when I first thought of becoming a monk maybe my, as I left when I left high school the ideal seemed quite uh, desirable in a wholesome way I didn't know how to achieve it at that time the monasteries in England had only just started and I didn't know about them I just had a vague idea I had to go to another country maybe in Asia to become a monk but still didn't have any knowledge or didn't hadn't met anyone who'd done that so I was still a bit unsure what to do so I was just practicing meditation with the Buddhist group and thinking about it but I'd already decided that's what I wanted to try if the occasion arose but then thinking the implications of that for a few years while I was at uni is quite a struggle because so many things in the world obviously pull you well away from the idea of being a samana the idea of having a relationship with someone making money, getting a job obtaining wealth and property and different kinds of things gaining experiences it all seems to be pulling the mind in another direction so already as a lay person I started to become aware of the struggle of a samana you know, this desire following attractions for things wanting to get rid of things wanting to argue with people you disagree with even wanting to fight with people you disagree with or feel threatened by but because I was practicing meditation and studying the teachings and trying to put them into practice in daily life I could see it's a very valuable struggle even though it was a struggle it's what the Buddha called a noble struggle you know, the noble struggle of maga over the kilesas it ennobles the mind it raises up the level of the mind brings the point where it can actually transcend the world so even though it's not easy it is a noble struggle it's worthy of effort for human beings to try this but just the effort to keep sila to be restrained and not to act in a, say an aggressive or violent ways not to follow one's sensuality and uh, act in unrestrained ways towards the opposite sex or towards just acquiring wealth or whatever requires a lot of effort but it's a noble effort a noble struggle I remember just trying to keep the eight precepts sometimes when nobody around understood at all what it was about or why you just think you're crazy you have to really come back onto your own 
faith and confidence and belief this this is something worth doing quite testing sometimes used to practice trying to practice not even eating in the evening not sleeping on a high bed maybe just sometimes just sleeping on a mat on the floor and to accept a lot of comments from other people trying to be honest trying not to drink and so on a lot of struggle probably one of the hardest ones working with lust once decided to become a monk trying to keep the eight precepts sometimes and just trying to keep celibate you went all around everybody has been far from celibate say when I was at uni maybe two or three different girls came along who were interested in me very attractive so I probably had to work with my own lust always had this thought mm, if I want to be a monk I'm going to have to avoid getting into a relationship it would be far too difficult to give that up so I used to contemplate death quite often you know, even if you do have a relationship you meet the most perfect girl in the world you still get old get sick and die and just using that reflection and all the suffering of responsibility and compromise and difficulties of living a family life or at least to having a relationship a steady relationship sometimes tested I remember the very last year when I'd already committed to going to Thailand I'd been to Thailand once came back so I was totally committed to becoming a, a bhikkhu and I was already in the process of giving away possessions and money and just trying to cut off all my attachments there's still one girl who was had been interested in me from the first year from time to time she would come back and try again flirt and uh, see if she could get me I'd always pr tried to practice equanimity best I could I remember there's one occasion in that last year it was always clear in my mind I'm going to become a monk we went to a party together and I took her she got fairly drunk so she became very unrestrained got me in a room at one point started taking her clothes off quickly put her clothes back on said oh time to go home <laughs> took her away took her home had to walk her home quite drunk very late at night took her back to her apartment took her in trying to be the gentleman took her up to her bedroom put her on her bed she pulled me on top of her said please make love to me then started taking her clothes off all the time I'm thinking I'm going to become a monk in Thailand just kept mindful of that I'm going to be a monk I'm going to be a monk don't want a relationship she's very attractive very young good looking from a good family 
very desirable sort of person. I just keep him, I'm going to be a monk, I'm going to be a monk in mind. So I just had to pull myself, prize myself off her body. She's writhing around on the bed. I just pulled myself off. Slowly walked backwards out of the room. Shut the door, walked down the stairs, walked out of the house. I'm going to be a monk, I'm going to be a monk. And it was pouring with rain by that time. It was about three in the morning or something. And the walk back to my where I live was about ten kilometres. No car, no vehicle, no buses, no... Probably had no money for a taxi. So I just walked in the rain, thinking, oh, you have to do a lot if you're going to be a monk. You have to give up things like this. So after a few kilometres walking like that, the tears started rolling down, thinking, oh, it's a lot of renunciation to become a monk. Couldn't tell which was the rain, which was the tears, because I was soaking wet, but there were tears coming down as well thinking how difficult it is. But a long walk is quite good, like walking meditation, just walk back, thinking about more about the practice than what I was leaving behind. Got back and had a rest. When I saw the girl again, she was very embarrassed and apologised. Anyway, things like that. Sometimes you have struggles in the flesh, sometimes it's just in your mind. But if you really want the higher happiness from the path, one has to struggle sometimes. One has to struggle not to be aggressive to others when you lose your temper. You have to struggle not to give in to lust, not to flirt, not to seek after sex in different ways, not to stimulate yourself. But this is the noble struggle, this is what the Buddha did, even the Buddha struggled like this, even the Sawakas, all the teachers we have, they've all had their own struggles. And when Ajahn Chah wrote, had his, they wrote his biography down, and he, had his, he mentioned his struggles with lust in the forest and the monks were feeling a bit shy to put them in paper, thinking it might offend people or just stir people up. He said, well, if you don't put them in, then we're not publishing the biography. Because that's what Dhamma practice is about. And whatever it is, it's your fear, your anger, your lust, your worry, your anxiety. It's all just kalesa to be, become mindful of and to become detached to and not to believe in. It's not you. These are just phenomena that arise and pass away. The most extreme lust arises, passes away. The most extreme anger, most extreme fear arises and passes away. Those things won't kill you. You only, you only have to establish mindfulness and just know well, this is just arising, passing away. Even if you do die, Better to die with mindfulness and right effort than to die with kilesa in your mind.
So much of our practice, much of the right effort, it's about re-establishing mindfulness, re-establishing reflection on Dhamma, re-establishing our sila, re-establishing our commitment to the practice, re-establishing the samana sanya, and finding skillful ways to do that. Everybody's different, different characters, different abilities. So you have to learn about yourself, what works for you that helps bring up more wholesome states of mind. You know, what brings up energy for you. Sometimes we have to be more active and do more service, or if we are intellectually active, study more or learn chanting. And obviously keeping up a regular meditation practice so you can keep observing your own mind and where it's at. Know the level of your mind, know when your mindfulness is dropping, when it's getting weaker. And then having some skillful strategies to deal with that, what to do. Go do more sitting and walking, do more skillful activities. There's always more that one can do for one's own practice. For the monastery as a whole, there's always plenty to do. <coughs> but one has to be willing to put effort into doing the skillful things, the right thing that will help overcome kilesa or just help prevent kilesa from arising. And this is right effort. The effort sometimes just to get up in the morning, especially when it's cold, and sit, even if you feel you're tired or sleepy, it's still worth sitting or even walking. If you find a warm place, you can always come to the hall in the morning and do a bit of walking meditation. Staying up later, doing different practices that just help bring up energy and help you to see the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of different moods, different mind states. You know, just watch them. Be willing to look at something with mindfulness over a period of time. Maybe you do have a strong emotion come up sometimes. Feel very restless and bored. Feel very aggressive. Feel very lustful. But just keep practicing with mindfulness. You watch it, it'll change. It doesn't last that long. And some of our happiness comes from just watching things arise and pass away, not believing them, not following them. You come back to the sense of being a samana, just being content to be a samana and practicing with these different problems and issues that might arise. If one can develop a basic contentment as being a samana, with being a samana, develops some basic brahmaviharas, then the practice becomes very smooth. Even if one still has plenty of kilesas coming up, one has the proper foundation to deal with them. You can develop the right view, how to look at them. Not to follow them, but just look at them as kilesa, see kilesa as kilesa. It's a cause of suffering, it's samudaya, second noble truth. So even kilesa becomes something noble when it's reflected on wisely. Or the dukkha that kilesa has brought becomes noble when you reflect on it and just know it as dukkha. You know, okay, there's this dukkha, there's this pain, 
mental pain, physical pain, but it's dukkha and you just know it as dukkha. You're not fighting it, resisting it, just accepting it as dukkha. But then looking at kalesa, which is the cause of dukkha, recognizing that and then letting it go. And the more we establish this way of thinking, looking at experience, using the Four Noble Truths and developing the path, well this is what brings us to the realization of the end of dukkha, whether it's temporary moments or sometimes maybe some big chunk of kilesa drops away, some past karmic conditioning, suddenly we realize it's come to an end, it's not bothering us anymore maybe bothered us for years but now it's just worn itself out through the practice reached a point where it's just worn away faded away and there's some realization of some cessation there you know, all these four noble truths are to be experienced for ourselves and this is what ennobles the mind this effort, this struggle to bring the mind to use the four noble truths to see things in terms of Four Noble Truths. It ennobles the mind and it's the foundation for transcending suffering. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <clears throat>